Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Maisha T. is an awesome and sometimes exhausted mom to three different ability children. She is an anti-racism guide, mental health activist, speaker, and entrepreneur who is passionate about women's mental wellness and empowerment. A passionate advocate for mental wellness, Maisha T. believes that when people get real, they can begin to heal. She founded the Check Your Privilege CYP movement, an online community, and a series of workshops that support women all over the world in exploring their relationships with power, privilege, and racism. A proponent for women of color having access to healing, she co-leads Brown Sisters Speak, a mental health, peer support, and women's empowerment movement for black, brown, indigenous women of color. But that's not it, guys. She's also an author of other books, Black, Beautiful, and Bipolar, Your Heart Can Heal, Heart Healing Lessons from Emotional Abuse, and The Hella Grateful Journal. And they're all available on Amazon. So we're excited for you to get to spend some time with Maisha, and we hope you enjoy. Let's just talk a little bit about when you think about how you show up in the world and in your work, what is foremost? Connection. The most important thing for me in my work is connection and common humanity, CCH. (laughs) So how is how I'm showing up connecting folks together um, and how are we witnessing each other's common humanity? And that is like the core of who I am and the work that I do across the multiple intersections of my life. So what are those, some of those intersections? Oh yeah. So for me, it could be um, like Brown Sisters Speak. So holding safe spaces for women of color, right? A holding sister circles, bringing women of color together to have silent meditations, affirmations, and just really discuss what's on their heart and, and share what's happening in their community to benefit the collective mental health of Black, Brown, and Indigenous women of color. The other one would be check your privilege, and that's really walking on this guided journey with white women to really dismantle their relationship with power, privilege, and racism while centering a Black woman as their guide. Because as we know, in anti-racism work, there's this centering of whiteness that keeps happening. So what does it look like to show connection and common humanity leading white women to really engage in this work? Another intersection for me would be being a single mom of three different ability children. So two with high-functioning autism, one with ADHD, all three having sensory processing disorder, and using our family story and our journeys through therapies to help other families get through the IEP process or help them navigate what type of testing do I need for my children. And it doesn't happen all the time. Like, I don't show up in that space all the time, but... You know, oftentimes I get calls from families or people who actually work for school districts who need pursuing the school district, teachers, principals. I work with principals who actually work for the district who just wanted to know, like, what do I need to do as a parent and how do I get my children individualized educational plan? And so I guess my life is pretty much connection, common humanity and advocacy. Those are like the three main intersections. And of course, there's like the yellow light when I have to take seasons of my life. And I teach Zumba occasionally or the yellow light of Reiki. Wow, that's a lot. So can you tell us about the Check Your Privilege anthology? Absolutely. Um, so this first book, uh, Check Your Privilege Living Into the Work, was birthed from vision. 
And the idea was, what does it look like to bring women of color and white women together to share their stories of what it's like navigating an anti-racist world and what that experience looks and feels like and telling their stories in a way to empower other folks on their journey. And what was birthed from that was an anthology series of books called Protect Your Privilege with um, a variety of themes. And so this first theme was live in the work. That was living into the work was like the original theme, but we shortened it to live into the work. And so where that theme came from was so many folks were online telling people to do your work. Or I'd be in workshops and I'd be facilitating and I'd be like, do your work. And folks would be like, okay, what does that mean? What do you want me to do? And then I started thinking like, when we're, t- when we're doing things or telling people to do things, it's like having a productivity checklist, right? I'm going to do this and I'm going to check it off and I am done and I am complete. But if we're looking at this anti-racism journey as something that is never completed as a constant state of unlearning and unlearning, we can't just really be in a state of do. We have to move into a state of living, like living into the experience, living into the work. And what that looks like is really embodying, what does it mean to be anti-racist? What does it mean to live my anti-racism journey? And yes, that could mean like, I'm going to go to a workshop. That means I've done something. But what is that one piece of valuable information that you learned that you can move into a space where you're embodying it as a value of yours? And then if you have a family, you embody that process into your family and you move through that one piece of value in your life. And then you just keep going along your co-conspired journey. And so that was the birth of that was the vision of this book around living into the work. Let's move away from just saying do the work. And really inspire and empower people to live into the experience of the work. Because going to a workshop is doing. Reading a book is doing. But how are you living into that? And so the idea was, how do we take stories from the experience of my co-authors and say, this was my story. This was my journey. This is how I lived into the experience. I love that idea of, in that challenge to move beyond the doing and the difference between doing and living. I, I appreciate the way that you explain the vision of the anthology series and of the, the first book that came out. And Jen, you, you are in that book, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Jen, what did you, if you would, because what we want, of course, is for people to go and buy the book. And of course, we'll share where people can do that. But Jen, tell me a little bit about what that was like for you being asked to participate in the book. What was your thought process uh, in in what you wrote and contributed to it? Yeah. So when Maisha approached me about joining this project, I was really excited for a number of reasons. One, I love Maisha and have been learning from her and working with her for quite some time now. And then two, I'm a writer And I would love to write about this part of my story because it's so much of what I dedicate my my life and my time to. But as a white woman, you know, people would come to me and be like, oh, you should write a book someday. You should write a book someday and you should talk about these things. And it's like, no, you know, this isn't my story to write about, put a book out on and make money off of. And so when my came to me and told me about this collaborative space and this opportunity to work in a way where I was working under her direction and then also all of the proceeds would be going to benefit 
her organization, Brown Sisters Speak, I was just like, this is amazing. Like to me, not only is the vision really cool, this idea of us just coming together imperfectly, sharing our stories and our journeys and not really giving people this how-to manual of how to do the work and how to be good and, and all of that, but just to enter into our stories and our, our spaces and stuff. So I was really excited about that. I put a few ideas out there for things that I want to write about. And it sounds like maybe if I'm fortunate enough, I'll get picked for a few of the books in the anthology. But this first one, I wrote my story about, it's actually titled Getting Proximate. And I wrote my journey toward living and moving into Detroit and kind of what took me along my journey and opened my eyes and and just really prepared me to enter into relationship and do this work more as living into it versus just checking the box and doing performative things in anti-racism. I think that is such a cool thing that you were able to be a part of it as a white woman and sharing what getting proximate has looked like for you and how that's affected your personal anti-racism journey. I want to go back just briefly. I'm sitting with the big awareness of the fact that I feel like we've spent this first part of this interview doing Maisha's bio. Like we just now finished talking about (laughs) all of the things that Maisha, that you're currently doing. And I just have to, I stand for you, my sister. I applaud you. I am so in awe of you and your your strength, your vision, just the way that you show up so beautifully and purposefully and intentionally with the purpose of being a connector and that just being something that you know that you were created to do and why you're here. And I, I just find it also worth noting that as Black women, we have all of these hats. We take on all of these things and do it with such grace. I can speak to you. I can speak directly, you know, knowing and not even knowing all of what you do, but just the fraction of what I know that you do. And then I know and I'm aware that even as we're talking about all of the ways that you have, all the things you have your hands in, all of the ways that you are influencing and shaping and connecting and leading, there are still things that we don't know. And I don't, I know we just, we just really don't even have enough time in one episode to go deeper in because you mentioned a little earlier, I think before we started recording that you also are trained in Reiki. So that's another piece, right? So we could continue to go and dig into all of the things that you do. But I just had to say, I, I am really grateful for all that you do. And you're so authentic. You seem to be in a place where you are in tune to and connected so intimately with yourself and your voice so that when something comes up that catches you off guard Um, and whether that is anxiety that you're dealing with, whether it is an attack that's coming from a social media place, which you've been through that recently, right? With, With Instagram, you react very quickly. You react quickly and intentionally as though you're, you just stay ready. I guess is what I'm saying. So I think I want to ask, I guess to turn that into kind of a question, what keeps you doing all that you do? What, what motivates you to continue to come back to this over and over again, to show up in the present moment with the things that are thrown at you? So I think that's where I will, that's the question I want to ask. Yeah. Thanks, Tina. Thank you for seeing me in all the things. <laughs> 
um, that I do. I really appreciate that. And yes, we as Black women do do all the things with grace. Well, first off, I need to say I have a team. So we have been planning content. We've planned the first half of the year's content. So anytime you see me show up, there's planned content that's already been planned that my team is just executing on. So my background is also in marketing. Not that that matters. I really don't think that anyone should go into anything alone. And so I have my Holy Trinity team, which is for my self-care. I have my therapist. I have my spiritual director and my peer support group. I don't do anything that's out of alignment with me just being really true to who I am as a person and really authentic. So for those who don't know, I know what it's like, Tina and Jen, to be so depressed and so immobile that you don't do anything but sit all day and stare at a screen. And I do all that I do to show my children that you can have passion and you can have drive and you can have a different ability and you can still show up in the world as long as you have supports in place. So if I did not have my therapy, if I did not have my spiritual direction, my peer support group, if I didn't have a team helping me execute on everything you guys see me do, like from social media posts to content editing to having a publisher now, if it was not more than just me and five other people, I wouldn't be able to do this work that I do because I know that I have to have supports in place as a single parent, as a human period to move forth in my vision. That's how I'm able to do all the things that I do. And there are lots of women and entrepreneurs that are out here doing it all by themselves. And I always tell somebody, I can help you find you a virtual assistant at a price that you spend at a McDonald's drive-thru once a week. (laughs) I can teach you how to do what I've done because that's how I'm able to show up and respond well. Because oftentimes I am in someone's inbox like, hey, this is what I'm noticing. Are you noticing this too? This is what my call to action would be to respond. And they're like giving me feedback. Okay, yes, we respond. That's great. But just remember, they're telling me because they know me. Remember to breathe. Remember to take care of yourself first and then put yourself out there. So having a team and then having folks that can check in when I do want to respond um, has been super helpful. I love that. Have your team. So now, Jen, I would love to kind of move into talking about some of the topics that we really, when we thought about, there are things that Jen and I see a lot of um, online and off when it comes to being in this work of anti-racism. And so when we thought about just different topics that we want to share and go over on the podcast, and then who would be best to address them, these are some of the things that we, you know, we came up with this list. And there's a couple of things that we thought Maisha would be wonderful to address. So uh, Jen, you want to kind of share and ask with regards to what you have observed, what we have talked about um, when it comes to ghosting the process. Jen, will you kind of talk about what that means? And then Maisha, if you would kind of share your thoughts about that. Yeah, so much of what we see in this work, especially among those of us who are white passing, is that people go hard and they perform and then they disappear. And like, Maisha, you are using a different term now. Is that correct? So we're using ghosting and aversion. So I don't put ghosting on the content anymore, but I do talk through it when I'm talking about aversion. So the term ghosting is basically, so how I explain is when you experience shame from doing this work, you typically do two things. You freeze or you ghost. You move into inaction. And what that happens is you actually ghost the entire process 
because it's created a feeling of aversion in your nervous system. And so aversion is like a strong dislike that's like nervous stimuli when you recognize like your behavior, was it good or you're just uncomfortable? And so oftentimes most white women get into this work because they've been told to do the work. They get on this journey, like, I'm going to do this. I'm a good white person. I'm going to take my Aisha's workshop, and then I'm going to go help a bunch of Black folks, and I am good to go. Well, what happens when they go out and help those Black folks and they cause harm or they get called a bad name for the way they're showing up? Um, there's a tendency to retract, to ghost, to disappear. And oftentimes, once you disappear from the work, then you have become complicit in white supremacy because you're not leaning into the discomfort. You're actually avoiding what you probably need to acknowledge as harm. And it's hard because you feel the shame associated with getting the work wrong. But if you're not getting the work wrong, you're not doing and living into the work. So for people who are listening, because this is something that I think is so prevalent, like we experience this so much. And I'm just curious, like for those who are listening, who are like, yeah, I can relate to this. There are these times that I see this happening in myself. What do you recommend as a healthy course of action to take hold of that and work with that instead of running away? Um, I always invite folks to go into a noticing practice. And that's actually when you, you actually know, like we know when we want to run away from somebody, something. So I would do a noticing and journaling practice. And that's basically asking yourself in your journal, why do I feel like I need to run away from this problem? What are the feelings that are coming up in my body? What are the thoughts that are coming up in my mind? What does my heart feel like? I would actually empower people to do an intentional noticing and journaling practice to help them get to the core root of why they want to run away. And then once you journal, just take a break from it for about 24 hours, revisit it, revisit what you wrote, and then write how you're feeling the next day. And then just move through that discomfort, move through those feelings, and just keep going. We need to be more intentional when we do this work. And um, definitely having some practices um, such as noticing, meditating, and mindful practices. Those are some of the tools we can use to help keep moving us forward. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because that is, that's tremendously important because I feel, and I I hear, and I know that because you and I do this work as black women working, who have a portion of what we do that is directed towards white women who are on their co-conspired journey. So Mm -hmm. it is incredibly common. It's so common that it is predictable. And so you and I are aware of it, number one, and we can often see it coming before it happens, right? Oh, yeah. So, and, and so this is why I feel like it's really important because there are different ways that this ghosting happens. There are different ways that the aversion mm-hmm. starts to happen. It, it may be even in levels, right? Right. Um, we start to see the resistance. And then when we start to push into or, or invite, as you're saying, and I love the language that you're using as you invite the white women who are on this journey to sit with and question and examine where those things are coming from and where it's coming up. And then, you know, ideally what happens is they are able to acknowledge where the aversion is coming from and why, and that its root is shame. Let me ask you, what good does shame do? What purpose does shame serve? And what can, and what, you know, what are some of the things that you share with white folks doing anti-racist work? That's a really good question. What good does shame serve? I'm not Brene Brown, (laughs) 
because she's the world's shame expert, but shame is here as a teacher, if I can say it. Shame is rooted in our experiences from childhood because we have been socialized to behave in certain ways. Shame is, all, is rooted in fear and based on our family experiences. And the one thing that you have to address when you want to move beyond shame is where did I learn this from? Where did I learn to not do hard things? Where did I learn to walk away from conversations that are difficult? Where did I learn to feel shame for asking for help? But it's really like deep introspection into this idea of shame and where it stems from internally on an individual level that helps them move beyond it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That that does make sense. And, you know, it's interesting because I find that the work of, of doing anti-racism and doing this self-reflection and analysis really goes hand in hand with therapy, (laughs) because when you start to identify your patterns of behavior, it isn't just a reflection of how you are showing up in whiteness towards folks of color. It is also showing up in how you are in all of your relationships. Right. Absolutely. That's actually what what this work is. It's 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 a journey of we're asking people to change your behavior. And so what that means is We're asking you to visit your inner child, visit your past experience, visit your current relationships. Because if you're not in conscious relationships with black and brown folks, are you really in conscious relationships with white folks? Yeah. Yeah. If you have harmful relationships with folks of color, nine times out of 10, you also have harmful relationships with other folks, with the white folks in your life, with your family, and so on. Right. 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 And I'm often even telling white women that I work with in tech is like the way that you're treating women of color in these tech spaces are the way that white men treat you. It's the cycle of abuse. It's just passed down and we're not recognizing it as a culture. Yeah. So then can you tell us a little bit about Saturday school and what it looks like and how I hate to use the word effective, is it? (laughs) But (laughs) maybe if you can give better language to that, you know, when, when, when white women sign up to be a part of Saturday school, what is it that they're looking for? What is it that they receive? And then when they come out of Saturday school, if there is a coming out, if there is a graduating or, or is it more of a, uh, just a progressive continual thing, what is then the result? And I would love to hear that maybe even, you know, maybe from both of you, I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. I can go and then Jen can give her experience. Well, it, it started as like an eight week program um, where we just take deep dives on topics just around anti-racism work um, and power, privilege, and oppression. And so white women coming in are looking for an experience to help them unpack their relationship with whatever the given topic is over eight weeks. And what ended up happening is community starts to form and white women seem to see the need for connection and the most important thing, centering the voice of a brown woman in leadership, that they actually start getting used to following the lead of a black woman or a brown woman leading them on this journey into becoming anti-racist. And so, you know, once you go through the eight weeks, it's eight weeks, it's eight different modules. We spend the first two weeks digging deep in structures and frameworks. And then we take the rest of our journey is really, I can't even, I don't even have the words to describe it. But what I do know is after those first two weeks of what we're used to using the master's tools to learn and, and really being, you know, this whole teaching, teaching, learning dynamic, 
it starts to form into co-conspiratorship. It starts to form into friendship. It starts to form into community. So then by the time we're at the end of week eight, everyone is crying because we've taken this journey together and then folks are deciding, okay, I'm going to be in the next cohort or we're going to keep this cohort its own unique group per se. So like the winter cohort, for example, it's a group of eight women, I believe. Um, we have our own group chat. We still check in and we're having a cohort check in in a couple of weeks. So spring cohort, it was about five women. Same thing happened where we're spending the first two weeks doing these frameworks, um, going deeper into the content on a personal level and then forming community and friendships all while centering me or the Black woman in power as the leader of the movement, checking in, asking questions, and really being an advocate for social causes. That's the best way I can explain it. Jen, you are a participant. Jen, can you give your experience of Saturday School in those eight weeks? Yeah, I'm trying to think how I would put it because it really (laughs) was very different from anything that I've experienced. And it was amazing because the way Maisha sets it up is where we're doing these Zoom calls. So you're in person, in a sense, digitally. And there's such a powerful dynamic in that. And so this experience of, you know, doing these really deep dives into curriculum but then also connecting with, sharing, speaking with, and building these relationships with people and building a sense of trust there in the way that Maisha holds space for people and encourages people to check in. How are you feeling? What is your body doing? Are you anxious? Are you sad? Are you, you know, and like, and let's dig into that and look at that. I really feel like it is such an essential part of truly, and it, it embodies living into the work. You know, that's where I really started to see this difference between doing work and living into it, you know, and, and I think there is this component that is so important and that is community and being in community. And it, it, so, so that's what I would say about it from my experience. Thank you for both sharing what that is like for you what that was, what that, what Saturday school has been for you. Maisha, I'm curious, what's the turnover rate? (laughs) And when I mean turnover rate, what would be the percentage of of women that stay with it? 80% because in my spaces, I do allow, well, I do allow people to miss and make up on their own time. So they have access to the content. Um, But it's about an 80% rate. And we, I front load now in the beginning, like when we get to week four, a majority of you will not finish. Like that is just, when, once I get to week four, I can always tell. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I can tell who's going to keep going. I can tell who's going to stop. Um, I can tell who, you know, when life shows up, I actually even tell people, I need you to pause this work right now and take care of your life. Stay a part of the group chat. Stay in communication with us. Let us know if you need anything, but you need to take a break. Yeah. 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 I've, and I've experienced the same uh, in with what I do. Legacy trips, for example, uh, I can say that out of the seven trips we've done so far, every single trip, there is someone that falls off. I'll say it like that. There, there, there is without a doubt whether, and the falling off can be anything from getting upset with me um, it, when I point out continued harmful behavior continued racist behavior or just disinterest, right? And just falling back into a privileged place of, I don't know if I want to be actually doing this. I don't know if I actually want to continue to 
be an advocate and an, an accomplice in such a ongoing way, you know, just not knowing if they want to continue, you know, it almost as though it's something that they want to try on to see how it's going to feel and how it's going to fit into their life, as opposed to allowing it to penetrate into their heart so they can integrate it into their life. And I've got just kind of one more thing to ask you about, because I think this is critical. And this is something that Jen and I spend a great deal of time talking about is the structure of and the how different it is and intentional it is that your work when you are working with white folks who are on their journey of 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 co-conspired action that they are led by a black woman that they have black leadership and that the person who is the authority and the expert who will be guiding them on this path is a black woman can you speak to what Black leadership means and why you feel it's so critical and necessary and, and, and why do you feel like it's a missing component in other anti-racism and social justice spaces? Oh, absolutely. This is the land built by my ancestors. And so every great American gadget, gizmo, piece of technology has come from my ancestors. So it is my birthright. It is our birthright as Black people to be leaders in social justice and anti-racism spaces. Every social movement started from the ground, ground up was actually started by communities of color fighting for injustice and fighting for action. And what has happened is, is as usual, our ideas and our thoughts get colonized into white supremacist pyramids of professionalism and folks have ran with it. I can't tell you how many times my grandmother, she was an amazing poet. She created something. I remember being little and hearing stories for creating something similar to a sanitary napkin. She didn't have the skill sets to know about patents and technology. Um, But had she had known that, would she have been able to own her patent? Would she have been able to show up as a black woman leader of her time and actually own her authority. And so Black leadership is our birthright. It is time for those of us who who are descendants of slaves to step into our authority and to show up as leaders in spaces that that we have been told we don't belong. And to be able to show up in those spaces where we're not going to assimilate all the time because assimilation is also a tool of white supremacy. I definitely think that Black leadership it needs to be centered in anti-racist spaces, in social justice spaces, in, in the white supremacist capitalistic spaces of the world, in tech, because we, ha- we haven't had a voice for how long, but yet we've created and cultivated these spaces that have been colonized from our experience, from our experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to be able to invite white folks in who want to be a part of affecting change Mm-hmm. For them to recognize that it isn't, ju- it, you know, it isn't just about them needing to come in and take up space, them needing to come in and start leading. And I think that's the challenge for yes. many white folks is that when they reach a certain level of awareness, they then want to then go and start doing their own things and workshops and writing the books, like as Jen referenced, you know, they're just there being this distinction, knowing 
is it appropriate and, or is it causing harm to be the white person who is stepping into a, uh, a position of leadership in dismantling racism? And stepping into a place of leadership is one thing. And then to take that to the next level of monetizing and profiting off of it. And again, Jen and I have been really investigating this and examining and exploring this because we see it. It's so very common. Right. Oh, absolutely. I used to have workshops where people would say, someone actually said in my workshop once, oh, maybe you should look up Tim Wise. He might be more palatable for you. And I stopped my workshop and I said, what makes you think it's appropriate for you to say that to me and to this whole room of white folks? Mm-hmm. And that's me standing up as a woman of color and leadership in, in, in my space. You can't do that. You can't compare me to the dominant culture norms. And, and it feels like that we're centering whiteness all the time because dominant culture has socialized us to that's the way it is. All teachers are white. Right. Right. So a majority of the teachers are white. A majority of CEOs are white men or white women. Because when black people do step with a sense of agency and step into our power, we oftentimes get uh, run out, I'll say. Because then we have words like, oh, you're too aggressive. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're too angry. Oh, you're doing too much, whatever that one means. Anyway, sorry, Tina, you got me fired up with this one. (laughs) Right. Don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. And then that's that, that, because that is what, that is a part of the white supremacist patriarchal system that we're trying to tear down is, Mm -hmm. is the, um, the normalcy of seeking authority from whiteness to the point where it looks, it's unusual still, sadly, it's unusual still that when there is a, when black folks are leading um, for white folks to be intentional about seeking out black leadership and about prioritizing black leadership. And there's this hesitation to even verbalize and communicate the necessity of black leadership um, because it's it's a decolonizing of the mind. And that is why somebody felt the intent to say to you, check out Tim Wise, because we have all this, we have all been conditioned and programmed to mm-hmm. see whiteness as the authority. And that's a part of what we, we're tearing down. Yeah. yeah. And this is, I mean, this is like a whole thing. We could start an entirely new conversation <laughs> right. here. Right. So I'll try not to, but I'm just sitting here and I'm trying to think about um, just some of the factors that lead to this dysfunction. And there are the obvious ones like white supremacy, right? Capitalism, uh, reliving cycles that we know and have been ingrained in us and stuff. One of the things that I have noticed through the years is that you have, and this was something that I did in the beginning as well, is, you know, it's like for white people, you get to this point of awareness where you know you're causing harm. And so you think logically, well, in order not to cause harm, I need to go and surround myself with white people and white teachers because then I won't cause harm, right? And what people don't understand in that is that there are black leaders like yourselves who are doing this work and putting yourself in this place, in this space to do this. And so I think a lot of white people misunderstand that, no, what you shouldn't do is you shouldn't go to your black friends 
and ask yeah. them questions. You mm -hmm. shouldn't go to your black friends and tokenize them and make them the expert on racism and ask them if it's okay that you like the Confederate flag, you know, you know, and, and doing these sorts right. of things, but that you should be learning from and listening to and investing in black and other people of color who are teachers and educators in this realm. Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent. And so I feel like that, that, you know, that's just something that I've noticed, you know, it's like, you've got people who are like, well, A to B to C, and they think it's this logical thing and they're doing less harm. And it's like, no, there, there are other ways to approach this. Right. And I just, you know, I'm always asked about the whole affinity groups. <laughs> I, sometimes I, I suggested on my last workshop and you were there, find an affinity group. Yeah. Um, I'm stop saying that um, because I've actually seen it de-center more whiteness um, and not really decolonize the way that organizations need to decolonize. And um, I'm going to stop there because I was going to really talk about the church needed to decolonize. So that's a whole nother podcast. Right. I mean, we could do like five different podcasts. Right. On these right. Different topics. Right. Well, yeah. conversation has been exactly what I had hoped it would be. It was incredibly full and informational and inspiring and, and, and we could just keep going. But um, as we, start to wrap up. We are so grateful for your time and your expertise, your knowledge, your wisdom, your presence, your voice, everything that you've shared with us. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and your work and support you? Absolutely. So you can find me at checkyourprivilege.co.co. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook as checkyourprivilege.co. And on the website, you'll find out about the Co-Conspirators Lounge, which is my version of Patreon. Um, and you can find out about Saturday School and the book. Yeah, the book. Go out and buy it. <laughs> yes, please buy the book. Buy the book. Yeah, we're excited about that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that Tina and I have been doing with the podcast now is sharing a joy moment with each other or asking our guests, what is something that is giving you joy? And so right now we're in the middle of this insanity with COVID-19 and Maisha, I believe you're in an area that's on a specific lockdown, but what is something that has been giving you joy or something that you want to share with us that's a joy moment for you? I'm so glad you asked me. Um, I'm smiling already because if you're following me, you know that what gives me joy is seeing my mom dance to yes. BTS. Oh my gosh. Can we please talk about your mother dancing and how she is life? Sorry. Nana. I excited. I got so excited. <laughs> See, she gives everybody so much joy. I'm actually going to go buy some, some props for her, for her, for her next one. I got to go drop them off real quick. She got into this group BTS like back in 2014 when they first came out and she, she should listen to BTS. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Then my brother died. And then I got super depressed. I fell in love with BTS. They are the seven man group from South Korea. And she one day just started making these videos. And I was like, what are you doing? And then she shared on Twitter and she started blowing up. That's and so awesome. every time BTS comes out with a new album, she makes these amazing videos and they're so life-giving. And it's just like, gosh, that, like you can do anything. My mom's dancing on Twitter to BTS. Like I might as well get up and teach a school class or something, but it's so life-giving. Right. It really takes, it really takes me away from any sense of anxiety or stress or fear, 
in this season that we're all living in right now. So y'all can follow her. She's BTS underscore Army Nana on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> get you some, uh, yes, get you some life. I will be sharing her occasionally on Check Your Privilege because we all need to just, just live a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. She brings me so much joy. So Maisha, thank you for sharing her with the rest of us. You're welcome. I bring her into my home and she is in my heart. I cannot wait to meet Nana in person one day and, you know, share space with her. Yeah, she she is absolutely life. So thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Welcome. All right. Thanks so much for listening to our episode with our good friend, Maisha T. Today is... Thursday, April 30th. And guess what? It happens to be Maisha's birthday. And Maisha is doing something that we really want to get behind and support and ask for you to join us and support as well. So Maisha is currently running a fundraiser for Brown Sisters Speak. And I'm going to read just a little bit from the Facebook page. But Maisha says, I'm raising money for Brown Sisters Speak and your contribution will make an impact whether you donate $5 or $500. Every little bit helps. COVID-19 is impacting the mental health of black, brown, indigenous people of color at disproportionate rates. Our therapy's scholarship applications have increased. Your donation helps us provide therapy services for women and girls of color throughout the state of California. So here's what you guys can do. As soon as this ends, head to Facebook and look up Brown Sisters Speak for Social Good Fund. It's a fundraiser for Social Good Fund by Maisha Hill, and you can donate directly there or DM her if you're having a difficult time on any of the platforms, Instagram, Facebook, or wherever that she mentioned, and let's help her raise the $10,000 that she is looking to raise in the next 30 days to help with this therapy fund. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know 